0: Telling you, bro, it has been happening, bro? Uh, not
1: too much. Still hitting the more Peggy O's. Hi, my name is Shane Terriot, and you are listening to The Riff Rap. Music, stories, and insights from the front line. Riff Rap. Riff Riff Rap.
2: Riff, riff,
1: riff, riff, riff. My guest today is Mr. John Schofield, or SCO as he is known among contemporaries. You know, John really needs no introduction, though. He's one of the most recognizable voices in modern jazz guitar. He's played with everyone from Chet Baker to George Duke to Miles Davis to Herbie Hancock. The list goes on and on. And he's one of my faves for sure. I first met John in Europe backstage at a jazz festival. I don't know, five years ago. But we didn't really get to be friends until I moved to New York a year or two ago, and we found out we were neighbors. So we get together and play every so often when we're both in town, as you can hear in the background. I can honestly say that he's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet, and he actually gave me one of his Sko signature model guitars for my birthday. It's such an amazing guitar. So given the chance to interview John, I just asked him questions that, things i wanted to know when i was a kid reading magazines and things that i always wondered about i hope you enjoy well thanks john for coming over man to the house you got
0: a chain yeah. wow get to hang with shane this is <laughs> happening
1: yeah i just you know we can talk about whatever man
0: oh. we're lucky we get to play guitar all day and <laughs> except for when we don't
1: What are you up to right now? You just finished your, uh, I know you finished that last record, it's great. Well
0: yeah, with the record uh, that came out, um, whatever it's called, uh, oh, Past Present. Yeah. Yeah, With, uh, on tour a lot with with that band, you know, with Joe Lovano and Bill Stewart and Ben Street on bass. And we've been playing a lot and we will do more of that this year.
1: Yeah, that's a great band.
0: in the summer, I'm getting ready to do this project with Brad Meldow on electric keyboards with uh, drummer Mark Juliana. Yeah. Um, and then I'm playing guitar and bass. Which and started out as a, as a double neck. I tried the double neck. As of right now, I'm not going to use the double neck because I've got a stand for the bass. So I can play <laughs> guitar and then run over to the bass and just start playing that. It's basically to play bass behind Meldow's solos. Because because Brad is like doing doing a a, you know a mini Moog bass kind of thing and playing piano and Rhodes and and synth and he does all that and then he wants to to when he takes improvised solos it's nice to have a bass player behind him you know so I'm going to do that and you're going to put the guitar on the stand and walk over yeah or or the bass on the stand the bass is on a stand and I kind of just go over right now we've only rehearsed twice so I don't know but. Right now, I kind of just walk over to the stand and play and and actually leave my guitar on where it is and just play the bass out in front of me. It didn't feel that bad. Or you can put the guitar down on your side like your Bruce Springsteen or some rock star where you put your guitar down like that and and just stand there playing the bass. I like the stand. It's like the cat from
1: Air Supply used to have his 12-string ovation. Right,
0: yeah. Bands used to do that, right? Yes did some stuff like that. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I remember going over and playing that uh, that other double
0: neck you had. It was that was pretty action, funny like that an day. Inch, <laughs> yeah, inch I bought it. two double necks. <laughs> the first one was that I bought was like three hundred bucks, and it was amazing that they had even made this somewhere. I don't know. It was rough. And then I bought a, a nice vintage Ibanez, but I think I think I'm going to just play these two, you know, use my regular guitar, and then walk over to a bass on a stand. That seems to be the answer. I'm sure Susan's happy about this, not having to
1: ship a yeah. double neck, or, you know, fly right. a double yeah, neck.
0: Right, yeah, double neck is huge.
1: But yeah, man. I, mean, I don't know how you would right. even, it's not like you'd rent it anywhere either.
0: No, you can't, they don't have them that are guitars. IR doesn't have them. No, they might have one that's 12 and 6, but not, not 4 and 6, you know. And then I'm doing this record of country tunes that I'm getting ready yeah. for. We're going in the studio April 1st. And uh, we're going to do country tunes and jazz them up, you know, mm-hmm. turn them into kind of turn them into bebop uh, on some of them anyway. That's great. Man. what's the name of the tune
1: you played at Birdland? You told me this already. Oh, uh, that um, was great. just
0: a girl I used to know. Yeah, that was beautiful. Man. Yeah. So it's going to be a record. You're to do jazz. that one, too. Yeah, I want to do that one. Yeah. A bunch of them. It's that same rhythm section plus, uh, which was Steve Swallow and Bill Stewart and Larry Goldings on keyboards. Nice. Great band. Yeah, no vocals, none of that. It's going to be a jazz record, you know, with... uh, But, you know, you can play those country tunes. Uh, It's kind of like blues or something. When the changes are real simple, you can stretch out on them, I think. Yeah. And, uh, well, we'll see. It's an experiment. It's a good... Harmonically, it's a good foundation to improvise on. Yeah, because because there's not a whole lot of changes, actually, you know. And I figure we can swing them some of them and uh and then just play the kind of like the one I was playing for you before mama tried yeah. it's it's kind of it's like a jazz an old standard or something when you kind of make the changes could you could you play well, just a, you know, a couple just give me a little sneak peek i mean the original is is you know Yeah,
1: you're putting all the two fives in there
0: with the, yeah, you can just blow on that, like a jazz tune. Mm -hmm. that and so we're going to try doing some stuff like that yeah i'm sure it'll be
1: amazing that's great yeah that's really hip a lot of those country tunes yeah they're just one four five with an occasional two yeah you know things like that three chords
0: in the truth yeah
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's all you need when you play a lot, you know, I know, like, part of your sound is a lot of the open strings inside the... Is that something you... I mean, you must have worked on it at some point. Oh, yeah, you know, I mean... Or did it just start, sort of happen on its own, and you just sort of...
0: Well, I heard other people doing it, too. I mean, Jim Hall in jazz used to use that, and then Bill Frizzell has really developed that. Um, and it's just... and it's something also that comes from rock, you know. <laughs> I mean, I don't think Barney Kessel and those older guys hardly played any any open strings because mm-hmm. they were trying to sound as un-guitar. Yeah, they, they, went, they didn't play those chords. You know. they, they wanted to sound like yeah. uh, 1950s jazz. You know, mm-hmm. but uh, there are a lot of possibilities uh, for voicings, especially when you when you think about getting close voicings. You know, where you, where the notes are closer together. You can't play those inversions on the guitar you know like sure like d like the first major seven i played was like that with the open b it, that only works in that one key right, oh, yeah. right. yeah so i mean it's kind of hard to yeah i mean well that's this uh, yeah, you actually can play it, but then you can st- yeah. you can stick the open E on there, too. So, I mean, it just gives you some nice kind of open, uh, closed position things, you know, I mean... Like a B major. I mean... Oh, yeah. That right there, A minor 11. an open do this B. One,
1: I think too, the, the C sharp seven with the, the sharp nine on top. Yeah.
0: That's probably the first one I learned, Taxman.
1: Yeah. yeah, that's Taxman. That's right? right. That's what
0: that is. Yeah, I, I learned Taxman as a, as a kid, and, and I knew it had to be in the key of C sharp, you know.
1: <laughs> or the the rock ones, this one. Oh, that's a good one, yeah. Stilto, violets and those kind of bands, you know, they all. Yeah,
0: they know about that too, yeah. You're, you play this one in C sharp. I know you do, man. Oh, uh, I may have played
1: that. I've never really.
0: sounds like Josie. Josie? Yeah, right. The I beginning never of played Josie. That, I've that voice. It's oh. nice shot. That's like, it's taking that and going a step further, putting the 13. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a cool one. Um. You know, you know, uh, you know, what's weird is, is I'm doing all these country tunes and they sound good in D, man. You know, D just, you know, for, there's a bunch of them. You know, these tunes are like the other ones, uh, you know, we're to, you know, I know you know this. Uh, uh. Wildwood Flower? Uh, yeah. Are you gonna do that? Oh, cool. It's a weird ass form, yeah. right? So I was thinking, duh, 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 duh. It's like a five-bar phrase, and then it's four bars, and if you just keep that as a bass line, then you go, you know, don't play the chords, but just play. there Like play chords just just believe like bass swallow yeah and not have any chords you know because if it would be, be too locked if you got those chords going at the same time you know? That's funny.
1: i wanted to ask you about this too it's a funny story uh this is a long time ago obviously i didn't know you then but there was a, a clinic i went to once and you were playing uh protocol and somebody asked you well, no some you weren't playing but somebody asked you the question he said how do you play over you know protocol when it's you know what's there's no key center like what are you thinking about when you play it and you said well can you play the riff and the guy said yeah and he go okay well tell me when i hit a wrong note (laughs) and he started playing over it and Uh it was just like you know it was a big lesson in phrasing and you know the way you you build tension and the release, uh-huh. and you know. Uh...
0: Well, you know, moving the stuff around uh, and and not just playing in, in in one key, but it's not like, I don't know. You just get good at being free, and this stuff, I I I did it in kind of fusion contexts in the '70s, and to people it sounded somewhat new, I guess, but uh, it really came from jazz and from the '60s jazz. Musicians that got really great at that, when Coltrane came in and they started to play over vamps, you know, and and uh, well, it really started with Miles with Count of Blue, you know, where they would play in one key, you know.
1: But those are more modal vamps. You talk about are and modal. Protocol is, is
0: but I don't the know if Protocol play, is right, but... yeah, it's over that. Is that right? Yeah, but see, I think of that as all G. Well, how would you play over that? I don't think of the chain. I don't think of playing. G, yeah. what now? G, anything? Yeah, but I won't. Well, I wouldn't play in. I, I would either play in G or play my shit where I move it around. You know. Uh-huh.
2: Uh-huh. Uh-huh.
0: stuff around and and I've developed a style and a way to do that uh from listening really to my idols in jazz you know from from all the great guys in the 60s that were influenced by free jazz you know but they would keep playing on grooves and stuff and Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter and Miles Davis and John Coltrane and McCoy Tyner and you know and all these great players then the guys that were my age the Brecker brothers you know the way they played and Joe Lovano, my buddy, you know. um, Not just guitar players, hardly any guitar players, mostly other instruments. Mm.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I hear, yeah, I mean, I hear some, there's so many signature things you do that aren't, they're not repetitive licks that you rely mm-hmm. on all the time but they're still signature, you know. So.
0: Yeah, well, I I got my licks, yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I don't I don't mean they're no, licks no, no. that you rely on yeah. all the time. I just mean they're signature things. Well, like you Kirby know what? I mean signature things that you hate. They
0: are definitely licks that I rely on, but I but the way I see that whole thing about licks is if you're playing in the moment and you actually hear it, it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's another thing when your fingers do the walking and you're not actually hearing it, you're just going on like kind of finger uh, muscle, memory muscle memory or something. No, I didn't yeah. mean
1: to imply that it's, yeah. you know, yeah, but s- it.
0: like Schofield
1: cliches you play. No, they're they're <laughs> signature. Like, you have a signature sound. And, yeah, I don't know how you do it because I always play a lot of the same shit. <laughs> well, I do <laughs> too. Everything do, I just
0: played, I yeah. played before, that's for sure, when we were just playing. Yeah.
1: yeah. But, you know, like when I heard you at Birdland, the, the, the sense of melody is there you know a lot of guys don't don't have that well i like that
0: and i think that's the you know there's there's the player disease the jazz disease the of playing too many notes which we all kind of have because in order to get any kind of you know style in blowing and soloing and all that you know you're going to try and play fast and and learn a bunch of stuff and sometimes it all comes out and you're not able to sound good and in order to sound good you have to pace that stuff with melody i think Hmm. because melody is the real key to music it's the whole thing yeah and in this all this you know the the rhythm has so much to do with the music that we like right so in order to generate an exciting rhythm you're going to end up playing a bunch of notes and stuff to you know like to get that thing happening that jazz thing but you got to mix it up with some melody in order to, before it, so it doesn't just sound like complete uh, exercises yeah, or or, just, or yeah, guitar man <laughs> and and, uh, and also kind of masturbatory yeah. yeah. You know, one
1: thing I I have to ask you about is like this this other signature thing you do where it's like I'm I'm this is a bad. In, impression of it but you know you're playing something and you go oh,
2: that yeah that's, you got it down
1: you, you got <laughs> I don't down. know I've seen you
0: do it before I but, do it all the time where I did that I,
1: come from was it just an I don't accident know. I just it?
0: kept like making your, that mistake and then, like then I, I liked it. it you know it's supposed to sound like an R&B singer you know you know
1: really an oh, r and oh, you know
0: oh, wow. <laughs>
2: yeah, I don't
0: know. You know, it's just yeah. it has got that warble. Yeah, 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 that's
1: it. Very cool. That's it. I can't do it. Yeah, with that's scrapping. good. Yeah. you got it. I mean, if anybody else did it, they would be like, oh man, you're just copying Sco's thing. I guess that's
0: the one original thing that I do. I guess I haven't heard anybody well,
1: else it. Well, like it's that. the only thing, but it's definitely that's the, the, the only most thing identifiable. I can think of. That's You first got to New York. Like you're from around this area, right? And then you yeah,
0: to- I grew up in, in in the suburbs of New York, in Connecticut, 50 miles from New York City.
1: Mm-hmm. And then when you when you got out of Berkeley, you went straight to New York.
0: Yeah, I went to Berkeley for t- two years. Then I lived in Boston for a year, just playing around up there. And then, but I had, you know, uh, the desire to move to New York, so I, uh, I was aiming for that, and uh, was starting to make. Some gigs in New York with uh some jazz people, you know little gigs, just i, I would say, okay, you know, it pays fifty bucks, I'll be there, you know it even like kind of in the burbs around New York in New Jersey, I remember playing in Lakewood, New Jersey, driving down, you know and it was it, it was but it was to play with some of the New York guys you know that were my age, and yeah, and uh, so I was starting to do that, and then i i uh I was able to move down in, in January of 1975.
1: 75. So, when you, did you ever have to have any sort of, you know, extra day gig or whatever to keep afloat, or where you had enough? You know, I, early I'm lucky
0: on? that way. I uh, I was doing. Uh, well, first of all, I didn't have much money, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I I um, I just would do any any gig I could. Uh, and, and which meant you know holiday in bands or wedding bands and also giving guitar lessons mm-hmm. and just any of that stuff to just to stay afloat uh, and I didn't have to do day gigs that's
1: great, I think it's yeah.
0: different for musicians now, nowadays yeah, it's a lot different you know expensive. a lot of really good players end up having to do temp gigs and drive taxis and all that
1: I know we've talked about all this before but you know me being from uh new orleans and stuff and talking to mac and dr john you know mac and you know for the people that don't know uh ricky sebastian they've they've all told me stories about back in the day you know and i think Mm -hmm. mac and charlie neville had a loft that was like 400 i remember it was like 250 bucks a month or something they just keep it but uh mac said that um you were in his band with ricky because ricky was like Mm -hmm. trying to make ends meet in New York when he first got there and mm-hmm. he would just play with Mac for extra money and mm-hmm. I guess it was you and Jocko got wind of it. Were you in the band the same time as Jocko? Like, no,
0: I never played any gigs when Jocko played with Mac. And Ricky played drums, another drummer too. Uh, I forget, but I, I, I didn't play that many gigs with Mac. You know, He called yeah. me, he was always getting different bands and stuff. Yeah. But it was, the you know, the really good horn players, Lou Marini and Ronnie Kuber, Charlie yeah. Miller and, yeah. Wow. Yeah.
1: Max said that he said uh, he liked Jocko, but what did he tell me? He said, anytime in my life at that point when shit went wrong, I looked to my right
0: and Jocko was right there. Yeah. Well, Jocko, when, when I think the period he's talking about when Jocko was living in New York and he would make gigs with people that he liked sometimes, you know, Jocko was already a superstar, you know, and, and but he was really in bad shape because of drugs and that sort of stuff. And, uh, yeah. (laughs) That would have
1: been, like, early 80s? Yeah, early 80s, yeah. yeah. It's a word-of-mouth period, probably. Yeah, he'd
0: already done the word-of-mouth, and and that had been real successful, but he was just on this huge downward spiral, Mm. almost like a street person, you know? That's when
1: you guys did the the DCI Mm -hmm. video around that time. Yeah, right,
0: yeah. But I had met him, uh, you know... Uh, in 1976, uh, I had heard about him from Pat Metheny because I knew Pat, even before Pat was famous up in Boston, we were both out there on the jazz scene. And Pat told me about Jocko and said, this this guy is the most unbelievable bass player I ever played with. And he's like our age, John, but you wouldn't believe how good he is. Only <laughs> problem is... He's kind of an asshole. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Jocko was incredible. Man, when I heard that first record that he made and uh, first stuff he was doing, I, he, he actually blew my mind more than I think anybody I ever met almost. Uh, and uh, never met anybody my age who was so, such a great, I mean, he had his own sound. He changed the instrument. And, and he could play funky and he could play jazz. He had yeah. this incredible sound on the instrument. That first so, <laughs> record is
1: amazing. I mean, yeah, amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. It was unbelievable to hear that. Even now. I listened to it, you know, a month or so ago. I, I saw that movie and I watched I listened
0: to the whole record just I got still gotta watch yeah, that movie. You'll like it. Thank you for lending it too. Yeah, I'm gonna like I just i <laughs> I'm hesitant to watch it because it was such a sad demise. Yeah. It was really bad.
1: But you know, they don't really harp on that as much. Of mm-hmm. course it's in there, but it's it's mostly positive mm-hmm. stuff, as as much as you could be, you know. The one thing about the movie I thought was interesting mm-hmm. is that there's no mention of Pat Matheny and well, he must have just
0: I think Pat doesn't, declined want to, to, doesn't want to be involved in it. It's really yeah. weird because he was the guy who was the closest to Jock. Yeah, right. You know, because they made "Broadside life, life it, Pat's first record after he had, you know, Pat had had this whole history with Jocko before that in Miami as mm-hmm. young musicians.
1: Yeah. I figured as much but, you know.
0: Yeah, I'm, sure I don't, I'm not his sure, his sure what reasons. the story is. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: when you, when you play, I mean, you play a whole variety of formats instrumentally, like upright bass sometimes or Steve mm-hmm. Swallow. and you mm-hmm. know, I'm sure you must change your approach somewhat, but when you play with an upright, I know I asked you about this once. Are there things you changed in your approach? I, I mean, I guess voicing-wise, you might comp more when there's upright. I
0: don't know. You know, I mean, you mean without keyboards, like when you're yeah, playing? Yeah,
1: without keyboard. keyboards, or even if you had, you know, maybe keyboards with an upright, is there something you would do different? Or, or maybe
0: not. Not really. I mean, I try to blend with the band, you know. Um, I mean, it depends on what kind of music you're playing, uh, whether I prefer upright or or electric. But I don't think... I think I'm just used to doing it, Shane. I've played with upright my whole life with a lot of, you know,
2: yeah.
0: classic jazz type people like my, you know, that I ended up playing with. So I'm just used to it. Yeah. Um, And maybe there's stuff that I do with the subconscious, I don't know. But I'll tell you this much, electric instruments really work well together. Electric bass and electric guitar, electric keyboards, they just, you know, as soon as you bring an acoustic element in there, it makes it a little more difficult. And, And I've really worked on trying to get electric guitar to work with Upright bass and saxophone. That's uh, part of it's just playing on and piano. That's you know, um, part of it's just playing softer and and uh, and trying to play in their space, you know, rather than having just this electric space over on the other side, you know. Well, Steve
1: Swallow's sort of got his own thing going on with He's that. Du- bass. He's different it's, from anybody. Yeah, yeah. I always liked that first, uh, the first couple of records that you probably—I don't even know if they were intended to be records.
0: The ones in Germany. The, um,
1: yeah, they like were actually light. intended to it be was, records. I didn't but, know yeah. if it was just a gig and the after No, they. Uh,
0: the recording company Enja came and recorded those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that—that's a great tone. You said that's a, just a polytone, just cranked. That's up, my right? polytone. That was back when I could actually bring it to Europe. I brought it on the plane. Uh, wow. And yeah. you're three thirty-five. That's my 335, yeah. It might have been the Ibanez by that point. That was around the same time I first got the Ibanez.
1: Now that Ibanez you have now, that's your main... Well, they're you have both two main. of them, right? Don't I got two, two
0: of them. One's from 1982 or 81, and this one's from 86. Okay. But, um... And that one has the coil tap. This one does Looks not up. have a coil tap. Oh, what's that little toggle? Oh, it does, but it's not hooked up. Oh. Sorry. Um, it's a producer Both switch. of mine... Yeah, right. <laughs> it sucks, which... Um, both of my guitars had the coil tap, but I never used it. Mm. Um, and they've been disconnected, but... This one has... Uh, new pickups. These are... Um, what are they called? They're from Memphis. Voodoo pickups. Oh. And my Guitar Tech... Um, Norio in New York City recommended those. Uh, the other Ibanez I have has the original pickups in it. 59,
1: Alnico, whatever
0: they are. Whatever their, yeah. their pickups that they were making in 1981. So did Ibanez just
1: approach you and, and yeah, you know, back just say, then, hey, um, you know, we have yeah. this guitar?
0: I was on tour in Europe with uh, Tara Masahino, and I'm sorry, in Japan with Tara Masahino. Uh, and it was right... Right before I joined Miles Davis' group. So it was 81. So yeah, that first guitar is 81. And uh, they were trying to get American artists to play their guitars. At that point, they weren't as famous as they are now. And they gave me a guitar. And I liked
1: it. You just bonded with it. And-
0: well, I had been playing my 335, and I was in Japan. My 335, five, at that point, I didn't know how to do truss rod adjustments on my guitars. So my, the guitar was really in bad shape. It needed a, a real adjustment. And now here I was in Japan, I didn't know anybody. And they gave me this guitar at the beginning of the tour. They didn't say, use it, they just gave it to me. And I took it out of the case and started playing it. It felt great and it sounded good. And it was similar to the 335, so it wasn't that far of a stretch. And I just never went back to the 335. The, uh, the Ibanez felt good to me. I still like my old 335. It's sitting home yeah, uh, forlorn, abandoned in its case. I played you know? it. Uh, you played uh, it, right?
1: Yeah, when I was there in October. It's, it's a beautiful guitar. I don't know, you want to play something? You want to play... Uh, what do you want to play, man? Let's play... Uh, what did we play last time? Oh, Hey Joe, you want to play yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> Those are cool changes to play over, man. They're well, like... Yeah, uh, it's sort of like... Like you're talking about the country, uh, the country music thing, you know? Just fundamentals and then...
0: Yeah, um, hey Joe, it's got some nice changes, right? What
1: key are you playing in? I thought you were just doing the...
0: Oh, I'm in the wrong key.
1: it is funky when you I, I mean you've probably inspired a whole <clears throat> all the jazzers to buy a, a distortion pedal you know the rat <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I don't know if, even know if you use a rat anymore but what how did that get how did you start that like did you just was it a rental amp that sounded really shitty and you
0: wanted to yeah you, you know sound? I yeah I, I had the rat and and yeah if I you know for a while I had this, yeah, I had amps that broke up nice. I had an old Fender Tremolux in the early '70s, that then it kind of died or something. And then I remember various amps. And then I had a, uh, I had an Ampeg amp too that I really liked. It was Herb Bushler, the bass player's wife's amp, <laughs> and I had it for like two years because he he wasn't using it, and then he asked for it back. It was his amp, actually. It was in the basement of a club, Sweet Basil's, and I took it home, and I said, man, can I use this amp? He said, sure. Then two years later, his wife wanted to play her Fender piano through it, so I had to give it back. (laughs) And then I I was playing gigs with twins and stuff, and it just didn't sound good. And uh, I had this rat pedal, so I just started using that, and that seemed to warm it up. Uh, And I just stayed with it for years. Um, Although, since... For the last 15 years or so, I've been playing through Voxes, and those distort naturally um, in a nice way. So I haven't used the RAT as much, the AC-30, yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, in your record, your new record, uh, you just plug straight into the Deluxe, right? I have an old
0: Deluxe from 64 and uh, yeah i just played straight yeah, through nice, it and i crunchy, liked like the tone on that you
1: could hear it it was nice that, yeah you could hear that power tube crunch too yep on it there's one tune where you <laughs> you did something bend like this you could just hear the tubes crunch. you could hear yeah. them
0: going yeah yeah, yeah. 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 it's nothing yeah. like it you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you like Marshalls, too, right? You like that well, I Marshall. like your
0: Marshall. Um, I haven't used them that much, but the times that I have when they're good ones like this, um, I think like Voxes and like a lot of amps, they vary, right?
1: They're sort of, I, I guess, yeah. I mean, that Marshall, when I bought it, it didn't sound like that. Um, so somebody... Well, Scott Henderson had, had one just like it, and he told me to send it to... Custom Audio Electronics. There's a guy named Martin. I don't think he's with them anymore, but that's somebody did. Mm-hmm. And it came back a whole different amp, man. It's like, it's so good, I don't even like taking so it out So they put how... the
0: game thing in there. They, yeah, they just, master, in there. they just put a master.
1: They just put a master. And um, I had somebody work on it up here because the, something happened with the fuse. And he goes, man, this, it's too hot. Like, why did they put this hot tube in there? But to me, it doesn't sound... You know, I've used it on on the TV thing, and I just plug straight into it. Sounds great. Yeah.
0: And, well, you know what? It, never let anybody tell you um, that you need to change your stuff when something is sounding good. Because mm-hmm. I've had various experts tell me, "Oh man, I, I, let me have your amp. I'll I'll improve it on, to amps that I liked, and then I didn't like it as much."
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, which which is which brings up a good point, man. Like gear. Guitar players, I think late, like maybe the last 10 years, I don't know, I never used to really be in the gear, and then I was for a little while when I was doing some recording sessions and things, but I think guitar players get overly obsessed with things, and somebody yeah. like you could pick up anything, you know, and it will sound like you, you know, because it's so much in the hands, you know. And the Well,
0: you know what, so- Shane, you're the same way, and, and any of us that have been playing for a long time sound like ourselves, you know, and... and so the different things that we hear on different guitars are a, a, a lot smaller than we think they are because we're used to our sound, you know, mm-hmm. it's like your own voice, you're used to it. Mm-hmm. And then you play like a Tele or a Strat or you play a 335 and you think, oh, they really sound different. Well, they sound different, but not that different. The main ingredient are your fingers and the way you play the guitar. hmm
1: and I think your ear, maybe yeah. subliminally, you you adjust, you make physical yeah. changes to things, tone I think, or whatever. Yeah, make, subliminally, we yeah. just start
0: to to change it so yeah. it sounds
1: the same. You know, and and you can't blame people because there's so many things out there now. It's like,
0: so much cool stuff to use. There's
1: tons of cool stuff. I mean, it's unbelievable. And I was always, I you know, before I came up here to New York, I'd always go, wow, these New York guys, they they use like one guitar and like. Really? Three pedals that, that they carry on a subway or something like that, you know, and out of necessity. Well, that's a New York thing because we well, don't think, have our car. That's what I think it truck. was. It was yeah. out of necessity. You know, yeah, they just right. play through anything and make it work, you know. In L.A., you go to a blues jam and somebody's got a pedal board like three feet long. <laughs> wow. Yeah, which you when making you're shit up, but... riding around
0: on the subway, it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah right. you got to be self-contained. But it
1: forces you to, to be, uh, you know, sometimes limitations mm-hmm. force you to get more, squeeze everything you can out of... Uh, yeah gear you know so yeah
0: and you know i'm i I am from the old school uh even though i'm i mean the guys that i listened to when i was really young they all kind of just had one guitar yeah even the rock guys jimi hendrix just always played that kind of guitar you probably went through many of them um and that's the way it was certainly for the jazz guys were you ever into clapton at all like cream yeah yeah, yeah, I like them. It's great I heard stuff, them. Man. I heard them play live in New York, yeah. Wow. A couple times.
1: He used to play really loud from Oh man, it
0: was yeah, it was, it was something. I mean, that was you know, that was in a way in the 60s, that whole the, that was a a mindset of rock and roll that that seemed similar to jazz for me. Like the way Cream would stretch out and play long and and other groups did that too. So th- th- then, when I heard Miles and stuff, it wasn't quite so foreign to me.
1: Yeah, they were really uh, they were almost fusiony. I mean, yeah, you know, was Ginger Baker fusion, was definitely was kind yeah, of fusion, He was a pre-fusion. He was a yeah. jazz drummer for sure. I mean, when he was, started, he, there were they fills he was every other. The... You know, Mitch Mitchell too. There was a Absolutely. fill every other bar. There was some sort of jazz yeah. fill. Yeah. This guy's played too much, right? <laughs> <laughs> it sounded pretty good to me. Yeah. When you, when you, um, you know, maybe we should talk about Miles a little bit. When you got that call, uh, Mike Stern was on the gig, right? But you mm-hmm. got the call to kind of come in and like sort of a uh, relief pitcher kind of call because Mike yeah. was in a, in well, a bad you know space.
0: Who, you know who really put together Miles's bands back then was Bill Evans, the sax player. Mm. When Miles came out of retirement, that was the first guy that he hooked up with. He met Bill, I think through Dave Liebman, and he said he really just thought Bill was the greatest because Bill played incredible saxophone and piano and everything. When well, was an incredible player, and uh, Miles had him put together the bands. He put together the band with Mike Stern, and he, he got Marcus Miller on the gig. And then when Miles decided to have two guitars, uh, he uh, Bill Evans got me the gig.
1: And, uh, was Miles uh, pretty intimidating? He must have been at first, right? Oh for you God. To come in?
0: Yeah, he's—I mean, the first—I played with him for two and a half years, and the first year, I—I I, uh, I was so scared every time I was around him. You know, he was my idol. Plus, he was this intimidating character. You know?
1: Yeah, it must have been a learning experience to be around Miles.
0: But it was him. great to—what well, you know? What all the great jazz guys that I got to hang out with. Um, from the beginning. Chet but, Baker, that was yeah, even before I Miles. I got to play but, with Chet yeah. and and, uh, and Jerry Mulligan, and also a lot of sort of lesser-known guys in New York. Uh, but a, the whole bunch all together made for this great experience hanging out with the older generation. Um, Steve Swallow, my buddy, is also from that generation, and I'd met him back before I ever met Miles or anybody, and he has been a mentor to me and and uh, you know other a lot of other guys too. Um, I remember like the guy the drummer with miles, Al Foster he he was a really a mentor and showed me a lot of stuff um, and the list goes on and on. Uh, but yeah to be around miles was incredible because he was the in 1982 when I joined his band, you know there was a big big thing about miles coming back. Uh, he was the biggest name in jazz and from an artistic point of view not from you know i mean it wasn't like there was no kenny g jazz was jazz you know and and miles was the the great innovator you know
1: yeah it sounds like a great time man i mean i I missed out on all that stuff
0: well you you know uh, every generation you're thinking oh i missed out on that right I'm thinking, oh, I missed out on Charlie Parker and Coltrane and stuff. So we all missed out on the stuff we love. Yeah. Because when we learn to play, we're listening to the stuff that's from 10 years before. Because that's the best stuff around, right? I mean, I guess there are some people that are just in the moment, only listened and learned from the music that's happening right around them. And I I envy them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because they can be right in it, you know.
1: I remember when I was at GIT, uh, you came and did a... uh, uh, it was a concert kind of clinic, and uh-huh. Alan Holdsworth was sitting there watching him. He was there? Him. Yeah, wow. he came in just to watch your, your gig, you know, which Man, I thought was pretty... Man, you know,
0: Alan has always been really nice to me, and all, all the great guitar players that I know, you know, that are sort of from my generation, like Alan and Pat Metheny and Bill Frisell and John Abercrombie and meeting John McLaughlin, you know, and all these guys, and Jim Hall, the, the older Pat Martino, set, Pat Martino, Those they've all been really nice. Alan, I remember when Tony Williams had his fusion band. I was in Billy Cobham's fusion band, and they brought Alan in from from England, you know, to play. And uh, so I met Alan way back then.
1: That uh, the Billy Cobham band, uh, George Duke live. I used to have that record. Um, I don't know if I'm playing this right. What was this? <laughs>
2: That's it. Yeah, that's my little
1: tune that that's I wrote. That's your tune, for them. right? Yeah. What was that called? Uh, uh, Ivory tatty. Ivory Tattoo. I don't remember what key it was in. I don't even
0: know either. Like, that's such even... a great riff, man. Uh, Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah a great I mean,
0: riff. that. Yeah, I don't know where I got that from. <laughs> But uh, that was a great thing for me to get to play with Billy and George. people remember that band um so that really that was before miles or any of that that was really my my big break that was your
1: big break but were you doing your own solo stuff well i was doing yeah
0: i was doing stuff no before i met billy cobb i I wasn't doing anything i met him in 1975 january 75 I joined his band and moved to New York all at the same time. Oh, wow. So I didn't do it. I, I was nothing before. I mean, I'd gotten to play a little with Jerry Mulligan. Yeah. But other than that, uh, Billy Cobb discovered me. And I got to play in his band. for The first year, it was in the beginning, it was the, with the Brecker brothers were in the band. And that blew my mind because wow. I was a huge fan of theirs. And then uh, some other horn players, Larry Snyder and Walt Fowler came in. Um, and... Uh, he kept the horn band going, but then uh, later, for, for over a year, we had the George Duke, Billy Cobham band uh, with Alfonso Johnson on mm-hmm. bass. And, you know, so this was great, man. I mean, we got to tour the, all over the place in Europe and America. Frankenstein Goes to the Disco, that was one of the tunes. (laughs) Yeah, that that was one one of of the two. George, George's incredible stuff. And Mm -hmm. he was a great friend and a real mentor to me. And... uh, What a great player.
1: Talk about some
0: soul. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people don't know, he told me... I had heard him with Cannonball before that, because he played in Cannonball Adderley's band, and then he joined Zappa. Um, But I had heard him a lot, and then he... He once told me that the way he played the Moog, you know, he was famous for that playing the blues, that, that he was originally trying to imitate Youssef Latif. Wow. Yusef Latif on oboe. Wow. Because Youssef played like blues oboe. Nobody else that I've heard has done that. Mm-hmm. And George thought of that when he was playing the Moog, you know. Yusef Lateef. What is that record, Live at, Live at Pips? Piece? Yeah, Live at, Live at Pips, Pips. With James, yeah. L- James from, Black. From New Orleans, Yeah. yeah.
1: That was a that's a pretty out there record, man. Mm, you look beautiful. I was listening to Buddy Rich the other day. She had never heard Buddy Rich, so we were listening. You, oh the tape?
0: Motherfuckers are sucking all over oh, it. <laughs> she, she was probably like, oh, <laughs> she Sad. loved it. Yeah, she loved it. Well, but you know what's a drag, man? Hey, everybody knows about Buddy Rich because of that.
1: Well, he was an amazing drummer, though, man. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I met, there's
0: this old guy up here who, um, who used to play with him. And he was saying, oh, yeah, everybody, all the, all the young musicians know about is that tape, yeah. you know.
1: <laughs> You're, you know, a lot of your stuff, man, a lot of your, your grooves and things, especially Modesky, Martin, and Wood, and some of the things with, with Bill Stewart, too, they seem like really a lot of second line influences, a lot of New Orleans kind of stuff. Yeah. And then you had Johnny V in your band at, at some point. I mean, yeah. did you ever, you listen to a lot of New Orleans music? Well,
0: absolutely. Um, and, and what I tell people is, you know, my the very first stuff I, I fell in love with as a kid, it turned out was New Orleans music, was you know, early jazz. I remember hearing Louis Armstrong, you know, and, and I loving the rhythm
2: mm-hmm.
0: that those guys made. And, and then the, the early rock and roll stuff I loved, so much of it was recorded in New Orleans and the R&B, you know, and I didn't even know that there was this New Orleans connection until later on. And, uh, of course, I love the meters. When they first came out, I didn't even know they were from New Orleans. And so the R&B, and and, uh, I remember, uh, um, when you look back at at a lot of the R&B, the greatest tracks, you know, came out of New Orleans, which I didn't even know that, you know, Chris Kenner and Lee Dorsey. And these old R&B things that I really liked. And then later in kind of the, I guess the uh seventies I started to realize where it came from and uh became a fan of the Wild Choppatulus record, mm, you know, and record, and, yeah. and all that stuff and, and really started to study it and would go down to New Orleans some. And I remember there was a guy who had the uh who brought jazz musicians down, uh Jonathan Rose, and he brought me down to play at Tyler's Beer Garden, um just with me and Johnny Vodokovic and Jim Singleton. Wow. And, uh, and that's when it, when it really, really hit me, the way Johnny played and stuff. that Man. There were uh, people that played in that style that could use it in, in a jazz idiom, you know. And we, what were you guys playing on those gigs? Just standards were you playing your own and stuff. But I remember, no, yeah, I, I don't think so. We were just jamming. But I remember we would do freedom jazz dance, and he would play a second line on it, you know. And so we were doing these kind of, you know, jazz funk tunes, but he would put a second line on it. Yeah. And uh, and that was quite a revelation to me, you know. But by then I had already had uh, things of the Mardi Gras Indians and stuff and was uh, said, "Oh wow, this is great. I, I was always aware of New Orleans because my mother was from New Orleans right. and I had family down there that were n- by no means music people, you know, but I was aware of this music and People should not ever discount for a second the fact that jazz came from New Orleans. And I'm talking about the early jazz, you know, Jelly Roll Morton and Louis Armstrong and 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 this music that rhythm is what Sidney Boucher. Yeah, and all that stuff. And that rhythm from the city that came from a hundred and something years ago is is the root of all of the stuff we know as New Orleans music, you know?
1: Mm-hmm yeah that whole Point Sienna groove and that whole thing, that's that, yeah, yeah
0: that's that's a, a New Orleans drummer and and uh Vernal Fugna, I yeah, think was Fugna, the first Fu yeah. right
1: yeah I, I love all that stuff too man. I remember hearing that uh your version of Sissy strut when you know years ago, and I liked the way you modulated because everybody does it the same
0: way. Yeah, I don't know what the way yeah. you know, I was sorta of, you know we were just yeah, trying I think to went think of something. Flat. To, we yeah. went to A Flat. Or something. It was cool. Jazz guy. you know.
1: No, it was great, <laughs> man.
0: record that at the time, you know, because it was sort of before the new interest in the meters, you know, the nineties interest in the meters. And uh it was just a tune that we could play. as soon as the Sissy Strut came out, it was a hit on the radio and every bar band played it. in whatever year that that was like Mustang
1: Sally. It was just like
0: Mustang Sally or Midnight Hour. It was one of the tunes that everybody played on pickup gigs, but you, you know, know
1: everybody plays it wrong. I mean, yeah, you I can think do any. Not your version. You did I a play completely wrong, cool man. thing. But like, I've played it with Porter and these guys. You mm-hmm. know, George Porter a million times, or any of these the guys in New Orleans. They're, they're so picky about it because yeah, they... the B section. You know, most people go right. That's what most people do. Right. What is it? It's. Uh... Right, I mean, uh, it's so one note it's okay, one yeah. no different, but if, but George will stop the band. Well, like
0: whoa, 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 no, 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 you 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 playing it wrong. Yeah, you know, you're playing it. Wrong. I know. Well, that's it, you know, that's, hey, you know, that's that's you know, that's their uh, uh, that's their their uh, incredible repertoire, you know, and yeah. and, uh, and I think Leo plays it uh, down here. That's the way. It, that sounds like the original. I think I, that's he plays it down there. Uh, yeah, I played wrong notes and everything. Uh, but I, I love that version. You know what? Right. I don't care. I, no. I, I kind of like when people just do it there. I know. I know. why does it on have everything. to be? Yeah. Yeah. You know, because it's not written. in You've stone. already recorded
1: mm-hmm. it. The meters have already. Here it is. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And Shit. their version that you can only be them. Yeah. Right. Well. I man, I think we got a lot of you good stuff. Yeah. Hey, Shane, it's it's so thank great man. to to hang with you and uh, hear you play the guitar because there's some incredible stuff coming out of that instrument. And uh, oh man, thank
1: and you. And that groove is happening. You don't have happening. to say
0: that, man. Come on. Yeah, it's the truth. <laughs> I don't have to. So, I, you know. <laughs> riff, 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 riff,
1: riff, riff, riff. All right, there you go, everybody. If you're still listening, thank you. Thank you, John Scofield. And I'd also like to say thank you to my friends at True Fire, Allie and Brad, for their support and also great ideas and feedback launching this podcast. And also to my friend Jack Mealy down at Music Shed Studios in New Orleans, Louisiana, for helping out on some of the editing. Thank you, Jack. And thank you, everyone out there, for listening. See you next time. Today's intro and closing music. It's Trashy from my soul record, Highway 90. Check it out if you want to hear more. Thanks.